Potato, potato, and a blast from the past. Call me now. This is the Focus Group. They're all business, except when they're not. It's the Focus Group with Tim Bennett and John Nash. Welcome to the Focus Group. John Nash with my good friend and co-host, Mr. Tim Bennett. Focusgroupradio.com is the URL for our website. And you'll find out all about us there, including our Tuesday podcast, TFG Unbuttoned. We want to thank our partners and sponsors, including Deep Discount, which has been a partner of ours here on the Focus Group since 2016. It's going on some time now. So uh, welcome to the show. And I want to let you know that in the back half, second half of the show, we have a guest. Uh, We have Professor Peter Fader from the uh, Wharton School and the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, his expertise is um, looking at customer-centric data and advising clients. We had a really great chat with him, so uh, that's going to come up after the break. But before that, we're going to banter a little bit. We have some Caught Our Eye, which I think Tim is going to love this week. And mm, uh, we also That's have a, a pretty high birthday. bar, John. <laughs> I know that you are going to love Caught My Eye. That I. <laughs> so before we came on air, we were talking about um, shows and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, I, Tim, I don't know about you. I, it takes a lot for me to start a series because I know that there's a commitment I have to make to watch all these episodes. I sometimes prefer a movie, hour and a half, two hours, you're done. We started watching The Gilded Age um, on HBO mm-hmm. back when it came out. and too. We watched two episodes or three, and then we just stopped for some reason. It wasn't like Down Abbey. We weren't enjoying it as much, you know. But then we picked it up again, and I have to tell you, it's worth watching. I think that Christine How Baranski... Many, is, there one, is it one season of episodes so far? Yes, there's a, nine episodes, and um, there's going to be a second up? season. Okay. And the unlike Down Abbey, I think that when you watch Down Abbey, you could drop into any episode and you kind of figure out there's a drama point, something big's happening, but all the little stories are still going on. You kind of figure it out. The Gilded Age is not quite like that. You have to sort of watch it from the start, but it does pay itself off. And I, I think Julian Fellows does a great job because, again, it's this whole idea of how mannered people were and what you could do and what you couldn't do and what you were born into and what you weren't born into, which is all kind of silly when you think about it. But but the, as it got along in the season, we really enjoyed it. So I might recommend that. Well, I'll have to, well, I'm, I'll have to pick it up, too, because I did the same thing you did. I watched, I watched more than you did, though. I probably watched four or five episodes. Of The Gilded Age? Yeah. And I, and I mentioned a couple of weeks ago on... on uh, I started, I watched Tehran, which was on Apple TV. Did you drop that? I dropped it at the last, <laughs> the finale. <laughs> and one of our listeners, Steve, uh, sent me a note and said, finish watching it. <laughs> so, so I need to finish watching it. But, uh, which I don't know why, because it's a great, there was a great premise. It's really a great, well-written um, thriller. And, uh you turned us on to Homeland a long time ago. Yes, this is similar to that in that there's a this is the Israeli Secret Service and how they orchestrated this landing of a plane and essentially switched out people. Wow. And were able to infiltrate Iran and get into uh and get into their um their power grid and then it goes from there. So it it really is well written, smart and, and you could see it being quite plausible. The other thing is it made, it really showed the two faces of, particularly with the young people and with what's going on with Iran now, um, 
kind of areas where people could just get away and avoid kind of the religious aspect of of the religious tyranny that's taking place in in Iran. But um, and the kids were just so they're twenty year old sort of kids, which were like twenty year olds anywhere you would think. So that part about it I thought was interesting. So it's not a bash on on either country. But um, it's just kind of political intrigue and and spying and and that sort of thing. You know, Homeland for us was just incredible. And then I think how many seasons did they have? have Well, yeah. And then it got off the... There you go. It jumped the shark or it went off the rails or something. But after season one, I just didn't want to pay attention to the story anymore. I don't know. I guess that's the way I am. Yeah, no, you're right. And I, I did this, you know, I the last thing I watched and then I was excited about, I think I mentioned that, was Breaking Bad. <laughs> and I couldn't get past the episode in season one. Maybe it's two or three in where they're washing themselves off in a kiddie pool outside. Right. After which, dissolving someone's body in a bathtub. Which there is so much more. And there's some things that I just laugh because you would find brilliant um, with some of the characters that evolve. So I need to, re- we need to reapproach Oh my it. gosh, yes, yes. Okay. And then to that, um, Better Call Saul, which uh, was part the of lawyer, the, 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 the lawyer that was Breaking Bad, and I've tried starting to I've started to watch that and just haven't invested invested the time. But you know, during the whole pandemic, everybody was okay. I've done watched I've watched all of Netflix. Now I'm going to watch all of Hulu. Now I'm going to watch all of all of HBO. Remember? Okay, I'm done with Netflix. What's next? <laughs> yep, you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. So I did watch a movie. Um, somebody recommended called the menu okay and that's ray fines plays a chef yeah. right yeah and i it came highly recommended from a couple of people and people on social media i've seen talk about it i don't know if it was because of the hype of they liked it so much richard and i finished it and he said who recommended this <laughs> <laughs> and uh i'd have to agree with him i was just i don't know i kept waiting for something more and for yeah. me it just never showed up Okay, have you heard of Knives Out, right? Knives Out, yes. So there's two of them. There's Knives Out and there's Knives Out the Glass Onion. And I didn't really know what they were until someone explained to me that they're kind of like in the vein of Agatha Christie, Hercule Poirot, you know, the like a world-famous detective comes to someone's home and everybody, like a, and he solves the mystery. So I have to see the first one now, which just literally aired on network TV the other night on TNT. I have to watch Knives Out the first and then see the new one. Because it's if it's a mis- murder mystery, I, I'm not, okay, I'm, I'm yeah. down for that. Yeah, I love a murder mystery, but yeah, I have to say. <laughs> All right, so folks, as I said, uh, we start with a little chit-chat, which we just did, and uh, then we go right into Caught Your Eye. What caught your eye? Here's what Tim and John found. So what caught your eye, Mr. Bennett? The caught my eye this week uh, John, if I was to tell you you were going to go to Istanbul, where would you tell me you were going? Turkey. Yeah, but they something's going on with the name, if I remember this correctly, right? Yeah, so Erdogan decided you're going to change the name of Turkey. So Erdogan is the, uh, the president of Turkey. And uh, so the State Department was notified. The State Department had sent out a uh, message saying that from now, from this point forward, and this was two days ago, the State Department will start spelling Turkey, as we spell it T-U-R-K-E-Y, as T-U-R-K-I-Y-E, and that's how it will be known and spelled in all diplomatic and formal settings, and the pronunciation goes to Turkeye. 
So it's potato, no gonna, potato. That's potato, why, that's why you have that on your slide. <laughs> right. So Turkeye. So T U R Turk, Turk, and then the I Y E K A. I've gone to a number of different places to see, and there's Turkeye, Turkeye, Turkeye. It's pretty much Turkeye. So they did say, so the name change was approved by the U.S. Board of Geographic Names following a request from the Turkish Embassy and uh, the State Department, which handles America's foreign policy, also adapted the change uh, and the spelling change. They said, however, that uh, it will take some time for the website and other diplomatic communiques to uh, catch up. And they said that uh, this came as an option, that the diplomats had the option of continuing to use Turkey or the Republic of Turkey when appropriate or when they would like. It said, for instance, the previous spelling followed um, cartographic products and it was more widely understood by the American public. They said the name change comes six months after the UN, the United Nations agreed to also recognize the name change last June. They said, however, the State Department will not change the pronunciation, so it will remain Turkey as far as the United <laughs> States is concerned, which reminds me of, remember, Myanmar and, um, God, why am I going to forget the name of the country? There's, there's only, uh, uh, Burma. The, yeah, uh, the United States that. and the UK call it Burma, the rest of the world calls it Myanmar. Myanmar. <laughs> so they said the change is not only uh, symbolic, but a rebranding effort. They said the Turkish people have, been, have called their country Turkeye since 1923 when the Ottoman Empire fell and the Turkish Republic was formed. And in 2021, President um, Erdogan had pushed for the name change because he was launching, or wants to launch, and is launching, a global rebranding campaign of the country. So he's asked the rest of the world to embrace the country's original name and not use the anglicized version. So he said this is the best representation of the Turkish people, the culture, the civilization, the values, and he hopes this rebranding effort will enhance the country's reputation as an international destination bolster the economy, and uh, boost tourism. Why not call it Hawaii if you want, to, <laughs> you want people to go there? If you're going to do that, yeah. Is this also in preparation? Are they still under consideration for NATO? No, they're in NATO. They're, they're the ones who are okay, not letting... Yeah. They're, they're, they're um, having trouble with Sweden and Finland, letting them come in because they think they're harboring terrorists, Kurds, and uh, which would be... If Turkey... Also of the 32 nations or whatever the exact number is, you all have to agree to allow to accept a new member. Right. Uh, this would be a huge issue if Turkey says no to Sweden and Finland, but um, they're still working on it. And right now, uh, Sweden has done everything that we're at, they were asked to do, but uh, Turkey's still not, still not happy. Mm. So, they, so some, some uh, supporters, so there are supporters. Um, of this change. Of, the of this change. Some supporters say that they like the, the idea of the change because Turkey... Uh, is known as a popular bird and a dish at Thanksgiving in the United States. And someone who's a turkey is also someone who does not work or is foolish. However, some people, even within Turkey, are skeptical of the rebranding, arguing this is simply a ploy from Erdogan to distract the people from the country's long list of problems. So there's a, a Turkish foreign analyst from Turkey. She told NPR, Turkey's crumbling under possibly the biggest financial crisis since the Second World War. Our two neighbors are fighting one another. There's a, a world food security crisis, and this is the time we decide to change the name of the country? <laughs> look over here. No, look over here. <laughs> right. So if you're going to head over to Istanbul, you're going to Turkey. 
Totorkei. <laughs> potato, potato. That's, yeah. Yeah. I saw this briefly, and I literally skimmed over it. I'm glad you picked it for caught my eye. That's Yeah, there's a number of stories about it. Um, you know, it, it's... Uh... And they said a number of countries over the years have changed or asked for pronunciations to have changed and uh, um, because a lot of things have been anglicized over, over the years. That's what caught my eye. How about you? There you go. Well, what caught my eye is a blast from the past, Tim. So I'm going to put up a graphic and I'll describe it for those listening. If you're watching on YouTube, you'll see what it is. And uh, here we go. It's none other than Miss Cleo. Oh, my gosh. And so just to remind you of who she is, a little audio blast from the past. Who asked you to go out of town? The stupid young one or the married one? The married one. That's what me thought. Don't go. You hear me? Mm-hmm. And you know what? Mm-hmm. You're not listening to me because I see you going. I see you going. I'm just telling you, I'm trying to help you to avoid the heartache. Don't go blindly through life. Let me use the power of the tarot to show you the way. Call me now for your free reading. <laughs> Call me now. She'd read the tarot. She'd, oh, what's wrong with your soul? What's wrong with your spirit, love? It's broken. <laughs> did, she, did, she, did she die or something? There was oh, something. no, no. So here's the next part. There's a new documentary on HBO <laughs> called Call Me Miss Cleo. Stop. Yes. <laughs> Look at the phone. <laughs> and uh, it tells you all about who she is, who she was, where she came from. And uh, I'm going to play a little clip from that. So hold on. Miss Cleo was a psychic advisor, and she read tarot cards. If anyone watched TV after midnight, you knew who Miss Cleo was. The best entertainment I could possibly imagine. She had such a presence. They didn't just want to hear about the future. They wanted what she gave. She gave you the truth. The U.S. government really brought the hammer down against Miss Cleo, went to frauding consumers. She was born in Los Angeles. She created this Miss Cleo character, which had a Jamaican accent. As far as the company profits, Miss Cleo didn't appear she was getting any of that. So in the clip, it says Miss Cleo was born in Los Angeles. She adopted Jamaican accent. (laughs) Oh, really? Yeah, there's a lot. So it's all fake? She apparently was in some kind of theater company for a while. And, and, uh, you know, when people found out that she was doing this, they're like, wait a minute, that's so-and-so. She was in our theater company years ago. It's a very interesting documentary and they do interview her and she talks with her (laughs) trademark jamaican accent and so bob and i were scrolling so earlier we were talking about movies and stuff that we wanted to catch up on and we were in that mode where we didn't want to do anything we didn't really make a commitment and suddenly i saw call me now and i was like hit the play button (laughs) so an hour and 20 minutes later we knew all we needed to know about the psychic hotline and miss cleo she must have made a ton of money didn't she on that or no. And in fact, that's the fascinating thing. She did not make a lot of money at all, but the company that she worked for made a ton of money. Oh, okay. So she was an actor, actress. She was sort of the face yeah. of the psychic hotline. Yeah. And you remember, we had hotlines for everything back in the day. You had hotlines they, for the Because she would probably like, call me, call me, but then they had psychics on, you know, on staff that, you you know, the phone would pick up and uh-huh. they yeah. took you up to That's exactly stuff. right. And when yeah. you see the show, they actually talk to some of the other psychics in air quotes <laughs> who worked all over the country for this psychic network. So that's it. Caught my eye was... Uh, Check out the, di- if you remember, Miss Cleo. Yeah. 
Call me now. You might appreciate the the documentary on HBO Max, which Mm -hmm. just popped up, and I think it dropped in December, so here we are. I'll have to look for that. It reminds me of Rachel and Card Services when you got that call all the time, and I'd say, Mm -hmm. I want to talk to Rachel. Rachel. She's not not available. You know, they hook you to someone else. Yeah. and I got one guy, and he's like, you know, he, he was obviously from a foreign uh, foreign land, and uh, was going to talk to me about my credit card. I said, I want to talk to Rachel, and uh, he, he says, so I don't know if she's available. I said, well, I I won't talk to you unless Rachel is there. And then he comes back, and goes, hello, I'm Rachel, <laughs> <laughs> which I, I almost wanted to buy something to give him credit because <laughs> because he he decided he was going to be Rachel. <laughs> that is good, Tim. Yeah, that is great. really good. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. So, uh, following Caught Our Eye, we're going to do a little change up. And normally we do business birthday after our break, but we have Professor Peter Fader joining us after the break. So, we're going to do business birthday. Everyone does celebrity birthday greetings, but the Focus Group is the only show in the universe that celebrates business birthdays. The birthday this week, January 11th, is uh, somebody I don't believe we've ever highlighted before i am so fascinated by this and how you found this this so, is no um, you are correct we've never done yeah I, and i looked and i looked so his, it's lauren hammond h-a-m-m-o-n-d he's uh he was born january 11th 1895 he died at 78 in july of 73 he was an american engineer and inventor he had over 19 patents he was uh, quite a quite a smart uh smart man and inventor his inventions included the Hammond organ, the Hammond clock, and the world's first polyphonic musical synthesizer called the Novacord. The Novacord was this all, I had to look it up, it's this all electronic um, synthesizer, but there was only about a thousand made um, because it was, uh, it, was, it was not intended to emulate an organ, but it was um, very difficult and expensive. So there, there weren't that many made, but he, he was known for also inventing that. He was born in Evanston, Illinois. He, uh, they said he had a great deal of technical prowess when he was growing up, but uh, his dad had taken his life. His dad was the founder of the First National Bank of Illinois, and uh, the bank went belly up, and he had killed himself. And so the, his mom packed him up, and off they went to France and Germany, and lived there for a number of years. So when he came back to the U.S., he came back, and he, uh, they came back to Illinois in 1909. He was fluent in French and German. And he had designed a, at 14 years old, he had designed a system for an automatic transmission for an automobile. And his mother was convinced that this was the ticket. And uh, so she convinced him to contact Renault, the French automaker. And, uh, but they wouldn't accept the patent. So, um, so he went on and still tinkered and, and did other things. So, but his first patent in 1912 was for a barometer. And uh, he was able to sell that for a dollar. So he was, uh, that was his first invention. He ended up going off to mechanical engineering school at Cornell University in New York, went to World War I and uh, was involved in the military. When he came back, he had met someone in the military that worked from Detroit and he got a job as an engineer, the chief engineer at Gray Motor Company, which was a manufacturer of marine engines. And uh, they were, he was, did such a good job, they were afraid he was going to leave. So aside from his regular salary, they gave him like $300 to pay him under the table a week for him to stay. But he saved that money, and in 1919, he took off and left Detroit, went to New York City, and uh, it's where he invented the silent spring-driven clock, which was a Hammond clock. 
And uh, that did quite well. It was inexpensive, and it was um, very mechanically advanced for its time. And uh, so he invented that in New York. He also invented the, the Teleview system for shutter glasses for 3D films. The first feature was the Man from Mars. So it preferred, or it premiered, <laughs> it premiered in New York at the Selwyn Theater, and it was critically acclaimed. It did very well, 1922. But it cost the the machinery they said in order to to do this and use these 3D uh, this 3D film uh, made it prohibitive. It was just way too expensive. So the movie never showed again, other than the <laughs> other than the premiere. But then they recut a 2D version of the film, renamed it Radio Mania, and uh, that ended up screening. He also worked, uh, as I said, on motors, clocks. He was responsible for a number of inventions, including an electric bridge table. So it was a mechanism below a table um, below the surface that would shuffle and deal the cards to four players at a table. Okay. Sounds kind of funny. <laughs> so he bought a used piano in 1933, discarded everything but the keyboard, used the keyboard as a controller, experimented with different sounds, and finally settled on something called the Tone Wheel Generator, which is still in use today. And uh, that's where he was known for the invention of the Hammond organ, which went into production in 1935. They said the patent came quickly. People were excited because it was a Great Depression. They wanted, they thought it was going to put a lot of people to work. And uh, so he was able to get the patent on that. And um, see if there's anything else later in life. He, uh, he died in Cornwell, Connecticut, which is a beautiful area of the state, uh, up in the, up in the uh, Litchfield, Litchfield Hills at uh, 78 years old. And uh, there's a, there is now a Hammond Organ Museum in Poland. Of all places, Poland, Poland. So he yeah. died in Cornwall, but you have to go to <laughs> go to Poland to learn about him. So right? my dyslexia messed messed me up earlier. I said he, I said he had nineteen. He had ninety one patents. Ninety one. Died. Yeah. So he was constantly doing constantly doing. He was stuff. an inventor. Yeah. But uh, claim to fame was the Hammond organ. Remember, every mall had a Hammond organ. Yeah, I do. I I remember Naugatuck Valley Mall had the organ store. You'd walk by and it boom. Did you have boom. one at the house? No. We we wanted one bad. We'd hear like the, the guy would turn on the boom, 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 boom. You know, remember the little beat tracks? That, oh yeah, and the, and you'd walk by, and the, every you're exactly right. Every mall it was ubiquitous, right? Every single mall had one, and they, somebody was out there dressed smartly. You hit the button, playing the organ in the front of the store. And yeah, I bet you wanted one. Could you imagine that one ad? Wanted organ player, organ player, right? You know, no experience necessary, but. Yeah, so happy birthday to uh, to Mr. Uh, Hammond. The uh, John mentioned before, um, uh, or John mentioned earlier that we've got we're going to take a quick break and we're going to go to shop talk and we've got a guest this week, Peter Fader, who uh, is a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He has a new book out called The Customer Base Audit, and John and I have a conversation with him, which um, we get into some marketing and analytic chat which uh, we both enjoyed, and I think he enjoyed as well. So stay with us. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to introduce you to Peter Fader and his latest book, The Customer Base Audit. So stay tuned. You're listening to The Focus Group with Tim and John. Learn more at focusgroupradio.com. Now, back to the focus group with Tim and John. Available pretty much everywhere. 
Welcome back to the Focus Group. John Nash with Tim Bennett here. Focusgroupradio.com is the URL for all you need to learn about me and Tim. Or I always get that wrong, Tim and me. <laughs> Including our Tuesday podcast, TFGM Bun. As promised for Shop Talk this week, we are welcoming to the show Professor Peter Fader. He is the Francis and Pei Yun Cha Professor of Marketing at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. So right away, if I say Wharton, you know this guy knows business. And uh, he has a new book out called The Customer Base Audit, which we'll be discussing with him. And since Tim and I come from slightly different aspects of the marketing and advertising world, I think this should be fun because I'm a creative director and I always used to sit in on research to hear particular things. And Tim's a director of marketing who would use research and data differently than I would. Uh, So right off the bat, I want to ask you something. The new book is called The Customer Base Audit, The First Step on the Journey to Customer Centricity. I like that word. If you had to do an elevator pitch for the book, you know, one of those two or three sentence things you give someone between the first floor and the sixth floor, (laughs) what would you say your elevator pitch is for the book? It all depends. It depends on who I'm on the elevator with. So um, if if I'm with fellow marketers, then I'm going to really punch up the customer part and say, look, we're all talking about it. We all understand that customers aren't created equal so let's be held accountable for it. Let, let's approach that in, in kind of a more rigorous, standardized way so we can make apples to apples comparisons across parts of our business, across different companies, across different years, just to see how healthy the customer base is and therefore how healthy the company is. On the other hand, if I was on the elevator with some accountants and finance people, well, I'd get off on the next floor. No, no, no. Um, <laughs> You I, might I, actually. I might get off with you too. I, uh, but I, but if I was stuck with them and and no one was responding when I pressed the emergency button, I might punch up the audit part because uh, all those people understand the idea of doing this regular audit. They hate doing it, but it's really important, and various stakeholders really depend on it. Uh, and and we feel that the doing an audit of the customer base is is as important as doing an audit of the firm as a whole. And it can tell you all sorts of things about the broader health of the business and its financial valuation uh, and give all kinds of guidance about, again, broad corporate strategy and not just day-to-day marketing tactics. You know, that audit term, I'm glad you're, you've refined that from here. You're using it in the context you just did, because the minute you set up that um, comparison or metaphor, I instantly understood what you were getting at. When you audit the customer, you're actually looking at the customer base saying, what are our most frequent customers? What are they purchasing? What are our outliers? Are people buying on price only? Are they buying on brand only? It's a very clever thing. So one thing I would say that we get asked a lot um, at the start of every new year is, you know, (laughs) what should a brand or a company do as we march into the new year? And 2023 is a particularly interesting one. I think the last four or five have been fractured media landscape, uh, you know, the switch to living at home for a while when we had lockdown, changed consumer spending habits and buying habits. So what do you see and what would you say would be your top recommendations for brands and marketers in 2023? You raised such a good point because for the past few years, for good and bad, we've been riding a wave of kind of, you know, chaos, uh, which again can be good as well as bad, Uh, whether it is COVID, whether it's changes in technology, changes in, in the whole uh, ad space. Uh, and so a lot of companies have been, uh, I'd say, taking their eye off the ball of 
the customer base and focusing on either staying solvent through COVID um, or chasing after shiny objects like personalization and loyalty programs and all sorts of stuff like that. Um, I'm hoping that, that 2023 is going to bring us to a point of, of, of stability where we don't have shiny objects to grasp for. We don't have excuses to make saying, oh, well, we wanted to do that customer thing, but COVID. Uh, and I think there's going to be more accountability. I think as, as, uh, as valuations of firms start to kind of come back to earth and are more appropriately reflective of the value of those companies and their customers, uh, as, as people start asking more questions about accountability instead of just sky's the limit spending, the kinds of points that, that you raised, who are the best customers? Are they bargain hunters? Or are they really truly loyal? Uh, those kinds of questions are going to become much more front and center uh, for a lot of different businesses. And I hope we're in a position to help companies answer them well. So, so Peter, this is your third book. And the one of the themes that uh, I seem to have found over and over again that you discuss is this customer lifetime value or the CLV. And on top of what you just explained to John, I, I often people often struggle as to how do you define a valuable customer and can you predict in the future if somebody will be? And I, I'd seen a lecture where you'd done and you, you gave an example of a big discounter, which might um, really just go on pure volume. But there's still customers. So I'm, I'm so if you are selling widgets or whatever your product is, how do you decide? Okay, this is going to be a valuable customer, and this one will not. So it all comes down to this idea of being able to measure, project, and manage customer lifetime value. That's my day job. <laughs> That's the stuff that I've been doing as a professor for you know, decades now. Uh, the the book writing is all pretty recent. That you know, again, as a publisher or parish professor. Uh, we, we focus on journal articles, Greek letters, lots of computational obfuscation. Uh, I'm not proud of that, although I, I like to believe I do it pretty well. So I've been basically refining these models of lifetime value and, and related concepts, customer retention, customer acquisition, just a lot of the kind of, you know, quanti customer metric stuff. We've been doing that for, for like I said, for decades. Uh, and the models really work. So our ability to look at some transaction log data, you know, who bought what when, and project how often they're going to consider buying from us uh, and how much will they spend when they do and to kind of add all that up, that's customer lifetime value. Right. So we've been doing that really well. That's a solved problem. The hard part is getting people to pay attention to it. You, so you're, you're very, you're very um, there was no hesitation in your belief in the analysis side of this and the projection ahead. Um, which I find fascinating. So I'm going to throw something at you, which I think is an interesting, well, I hope is an interesting question. Do you think most businesses, small and large, operate on an a priori idea of their customers? A priori meaning land, meaning that which was before. Like I, I have an idea in my head of who's buying my brand. And, yes. and, you're, and you can come along and, and Peter Fader can come along with his, his analysis and you might be able to nudge me on this, but do you, do you find that as a resistance point that, that brands have an innate kind of, we know who we're talking to? Yes, and, and it's not necessarily a point of resistance. Sometimes it means they're embracing the idea of customer lifetime value. It's just that they don't need to run fancy schmancy models. They, they just understand it intuitively. Uh, and, you know, if it's a really small business, and when I say that, I'm not referring to revenue. I'm referring to the size of the customer base. 
So whether you're uh, running a, a, a bodega or you're selling parts to airline manufacturers and you only have a you know, dozen customers, uh, if you really can see your customers at a granular level, you kind of know who the best ones are. You know whose call you're going to take at 2 o'clock in the morning and who can wait until Monday. Uh, so, so a lot of businesses do understand that and they might be right about it. The problem is as mm. you grow, as you open up that second location, as you go from you know Customer tens of customers changes. to millions, you lose it and you tend to oversimplify it. And you tend to either focus on the customer, will the customer like it, or you'll do some kind of demographic persona generational thing. You know, that our customer is a, you know, Gen Z housewife, whatever. Um, and, and that's when you start to really lose it. That's when you, you, you lose that, that, that more intimate understanding that you had when you were a small business. We're, we're speaking with Peter Fader, who's a professor, a professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. His latest book is The Customer Base Audit. When you, did anything surprise you when you wrote the book? Because you seem to, you know, you, you know an awful lot about the data and the the customer as a whole. But did you learn? Was was there something that surprised you in writing this this particular? Yeah, book? there actually actually was. So when it comes to the the overall metrics, we focus on these five lenses of how to look at the customer base, uh, and we can talk about that if, if there's time and interest. Uh, that stuff we, we kind of already knew. I mean, the idea for the book, my uh, my first co-author Bruce Hardy. Uh, first emailed me in 2004 saying we need to write a book on the customer base audit just to kind of lay out a lot of the, the things that we've been doing academically. So the biggest surprises come in from co-author number two, Michael Ross. He's a practitioner, an executive over in the UK, and his ability to tie all the metrics and data to actual activities on the part of the firm that's where the surprises arise. So as one specific example, we have a chapter where we bring back the product dimension. We spend most of the book just talking customer, 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 don't worry about the product. But we bring back the product dimension and we see some really interesting patterns there that are certain products, certain uh, SKUs that tend to be disproportionately associated with higher value customers. They're, they're kind of a, if that's the first product they buy, it's a harbinger that this customer is going to be a good one. You know, keep your eye on customers like this. So it's really interesting that, that beyond just the pure transaction log stuff, taking into account some of the, the more day-to-day -day business activities, products they're purchasing, channels they're purchasing through, uh, campaigns that they're responding to, um, have very strong associations with value and obviously gives you a lot of leverage to know how to use them more effectively. I had to laugh when you mentioned Michael Ross being from the UK. I, why, why are all the planners that have to use data, they all seem to come from the UK? The, 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 what know, are they doing over there? There's something to that. There's <laughs> something about the educational system where Michael and Bruce are teaching a, a course over at the London Business School where they're laying all this stuff out there. They've been doing it for a couple of years, and it's, again, it's very rigorous. It's the kind of thing that if we tried to teach it here, our students would revolt. Yeah. They say, you can't expect us to do all that. It's hard. Uh, but, uh, but over there, they can, they can hold students to a higher standard. I think they get more out of it. And some of it eventually does spill over into actual practice. I had one quick question about um, product, a tangible product versus a service. So does, is, this mm. app, is, is this applicable for either or? Great question. So you, there's, a, there's an area, I think you talk about Netflix and kind of the, 
the fall off of Netflix, but as a service. But is it? Can, do these principles cover both service they and? They do. They do. They do. So you know, and this is a question I get asked all the time, and no one believes me when I answer it. Which is to say, I don't care what you're selling, product or service, B2B, B2C, big and complicated versus small and mundane. Um, all I care about is the nature of the relationship with the customer. So is it something that's being bought on a subscription basis or is it something that's being bought more on a discretionary basis? And if you think about it, that transcends product versus service. You know, there are some services right. that you get a subscription for and some that you just buy when you want. Same thing with products. So that's what I care more about is, is that kind of contractual versus non-contractual sort of thing. And of course, it gets more complicated than that. You have hybrid models like Amazon Prime or your local gym with a subscription and discretionary purchasing. But, 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 but that's the main focus for me as opposed to what is the thing that we're selling. So in that model you were just discussing, value must play a huge, and, and it must be an unusual variable. So if it's a service, do I value Netflix or Disney Plus or HBO Max on a monthly level? And, and there are, must be consumers who look at it completely transactional. Like I want to watch Star Wars. I'm going to do it for one month and I'm going to cancel it after that. And, and that would be like a churn rate, I suppose. Sure. Right? So actually, it's a, it's a great example that in situations like that, where people will kind of come and go with their subscription and then sign up again and let it go again then I wouldn't even count that as a contractual business. I'd count that as a discretionary, that you're signing these short-term contracts. Uh, and so I would say that's just a discretionary business. How many contracts have you signed up over the last five years? So again, it's, so it's less about uh, you know, what is being sold and more about just, just the nature of the behavior. Uh, and we see that all the time. In fact, in a lot of our models, will explicitly allow for churn and then signing up again and letting people go through those cycles and absolutely take all that into account. So if, if, if Netflix hired you, for example, um, or let, Paramount Plus might be a better example because they're one of the trailing or smaller streaming platforms. I had, if I were sitting on the Paramount team, I would want to know from you what I need to do to change my content to increase the value, whereas you're actually saying that may or may not have a, uh, if I'm hearing you correctly, that may or may not have an impact because if you don't understand who's buying these subscriptions, the high value customer versus someone who is completely transactional, no matter what you put on the platform, they're not going to hang around for two or three months or they're not going to become a long-term subscriber. Is that something you encounter with some of the corporations? Oh, yes, I with? love that. I love that. We've actually done this several times, like with, with Spotify, for instance. Wow. Uh, let's, let's first calculate the lifetime value of every one of our customers. Uh, and let's look for those high value ones and ask, what kind of content do they consume disproportionately more than the so-so customers? So if we're looking at certain kinds of artists or programs, it's not just a matter of, you know, how many times have people viewed this content? It's which customers are doing so. And you look at recently, uh, HBO, uh, the big announcement, they decided to, to get rid of Westworld or something like that. Uh, and you wonder about that. I wonder about that. Uh, and if they, if they told me, I didn't talk to them about this, that it was only being consumed by low value customers. So it's not kind of worth our while to keep it around and to promote it or whatever else. Fine. Great. Maybe a good idea. But if it's being consumed by high value customers, even if only a, there's only a few of them, 
then you want to keep that around because that might be the thing that's keeping these people uh, within HBO. So very often it's those kind of niche products or content that are keeping those high value customers around. You want to be very, very careful as you're making these kinds of, of product decisions. Be very mindful of who's buying and consuming it. Are there any companies that come to mind immediately that are employing your uh, techniques and doing it well? Yes, indeed. And it, my, a lot of my books are kind of a, a great big valentine uh, to companies like Electronic Arts. A lot EA, of gaming really? companies, okay. they really, really get this. First of all, uh, you don't have to convince anybody, anybody, not just the marketing people, but everybody buys into Lifetime Value as the North Star. And they're using it to drive every kind of decision, including what kind of games to develop. So instead of just going to the R&D people and saying, hey, come up with a cool game. We need a blockbuster. They'll say, hey, we got these really valuable customers over here. Come up with something for them. Uh, and the guy who used to head up all of data analytics for EA, a guy named Zachary Anderson, he really got this. I mean, I learned far more from him than he learns from me. He left recently and is now uh, uh, deploying the same kind of magic at NatWest Bank over in the UK. Gosh. So it shows that you can actually take some of these, these insights, not just the data and the patterns and the models, but even the way they, they apply to product development and, and campaign management and customer experience and use them pretty broadly, even in, in very different kinds of sectors. That is so fascinating. And while you were answering Tim's question, a word came to mind. I don't know if it plays into this passion. So when you describe the game, I'm super surprised that your answer involved the gaming industry and that they understand this. And then the more you went into it, I'm like, okay, I get it because I know people who buy into the platforms and stuff. So um, we talk a lot in our, our field, Tim and I, about this esoteric passion thing, but is passion part of this equation as well? Uh, yes and no. Or would you uh, put that in the value category? So, so for me personally, it's all about just behavioral data. data, who bought what when. But when I identify those high value customers, I want to say what makes them different. And we've already discussed it might be the products they buy, the channels they buy through. But we can often overlay an attitudinal survey and say what makes them different in terms of how they think about the company or just their worldview. Are they optimists, pessimists, lovers or haters? So very often we can bring in those kinds of characteristics in phase two. To, to, to say, you know, what sets those high value customers apart so that not only can we get a couple of better products for them, but we know better ways to pitch them. We know which kinds of emotions to, to, to get into. So, again, I have no expertise about that, but we, I just provide the engine for more traditional marketers to kind of come on in and, and, uh, and deploy their craft uh, in, in, a, in a better way, get better results for it. And I'm doing it already. So yeah. if you were sitting in front of me presenting, I would be picking up on a lot of that high value stuff, like the, those customers. Then I would ask, well, is there a passion point? Okay. <laughs> yeah, and, and it really is a great question. A lot of the projects that I do, so I've taken a lot of this, this research and I've co-founded a company called Theta. And that's all we do is, is we, we, just, we just give you a lifetime values, but we'll very often partner with consulting firms, ad agencies, analytics firms who have some kind of you know, customer experience score, or maybe they're using net promoter score or something else. Uh, and to lay that on top of the models to start to get to the why. Because <laughs> I'm not really a why kind of guy. I'm much more about a what, who, when. 
but obviously, we want to know the why in order for to us to, to make better decisions. So I'm a, a big fan of doing that, but it's just a matter of knowing our priorities, bringing that stuff in is step two. I'm going to ask you to take your, maybe your professor hat off, or maybe put your professor hat on. So the um, higher education is going through mm. a, a real reset and a reboot, and places obviously like Wharton or UPenn with lots of resources will obviously survive. What, what do, do you have a, could you predict the future of what you think will happen based on this customer audit philosophy? You know, could That's you clever, Tim? <laughs> well, could you apply this? And I, a little selfish for me too, because I'm on my, my college's alumni board, but you know, so many places are talking about how are we handling new, this whole reset of students and more online and so forth. Do you? Oh, it's a great point. It's a great analogy. And, and you know, we're riding high at Wharton in the University of Pennsylvania, and we're figuring that that all of that turbulence on the horizon doesn't apply to us. We're, we're, we're fine. Our product is so good, people right. are going to keep lining <laughs> up to buy it, even if we're not that good at delivering it compared to other schools that might focus more on teaching or might focus more on multi-channel education. Right. So I, I absolutely feel that, that we aren't very customer-centric. We focus on our product and we kind of put it out there and we say, come one, come all. And by the way, it's going to cost, you know, 10% more than it did last year. And we keep getting away with it. But a lot of other schools, lesser schools, are finding that they really do need to lean into certain kinds of students. Right. And they need to really, instead of just saying, hey, who can teach what course? It's, hey, we got, the, we got a really valuable niche over here. We're going to develop a specialized program in, you know, analytics or neuroscience or something. And we need to focus on you know, that kind of content. And we need to be able to deliver it through lots of different channels in the classroom and online. So the kind of schools that are getting squeezed in the middle are actually being much more progressive about this customer centricity thing. Now, look, I don't want to be too critical about, about, about Wharton. We are doing some, some serious experimentation right. with some of those modalities. But it's still more on the margin than it is front and center. So it's a really, really great point. Right. Well, we want to thank you for joining us. So we could probably have you on for, for a full hour. So yeah, Tim, I was just saying, back yeah, I'm like, I'm like I want to have him back and let's do it a whole hour. <laughs> I know we just, we just touched the surface. So we want to thank you. It's uh, Peter Fader's professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He has three books that are out. Do you want to tell us the, uh, well, it's Customer Centricity is your first one. The other one was the Customer Centricity Playbook. And now you have the Customer Base Audit, which you can find at uh, Amazon, I saw them all there, as well as wherever all good books are sold. We appreciate the time you spent with us. Is there a, a website you'd like to um, let people know how they can contact you should they have interest? Uh, I, I don't hide very well. If anyone no. finds this stuff interesting, <laughs> intriguing, provocative, just Google my name. But I do encourage people to, to, to reach out. I love this conversation. Again, I'm saying some things that, are, that go against the grain. So hold me accountable, and I'd be glad to talk more well, about it. Well, I'll, I'll, um, I'll give you a compliment. I, I went down the rabbit hole watching a bunch of your videos on YouTube. And mostly when we have authors on or whatever, I skim, skim, skim. But I, I all of a sudden looked at the clock. I said to John, you've got to watch some of these uh, lectures yes. that you've given at various yeah. places. So congratulations. And again, thank you for joining us. I here. appreciate and, it. And Tim and I have been doing this for almost 15 years now. So when Tim calls me and says, I want you to check out Peter's videos, and I'm like, really? <laughs> because that's not his MO Rare. usually. He's like, he's a good speaker. You really enjoy talking to him. <laughs> well, so that's great. That really does mean a lot. And I, I hope that you're the harbinger 
of, of lots of other folks uh, showing similar kind of interest. Well, thanks, Peter. Have a, have a successful and healthy 2023. And uh, again, thanks for joining us here in the Focus Group. Good conversation, Mr. Nash. Did you learn a, learn a lot about? I learned a lot, and I and here's how I know I want to have. Here's how I know I learned a lot, and I want to learn more. <laughs> I really enjoyed talking to him, and you know what I really like about it? Um, he kept his focus on what he does right best, which is he he analyzes and understands the c consumer and their value, et cetera. You and I listen to this, and we automatically layer in all the rules that we know about, you know, right. what's the emotional state, what's the price, but, and the four Ps play into this, right? Right. Product, price, placement, promotion. promotion right. um, I think it's fascinating stuff, I really do. Yeah, and the other part I like too is he was honest. I thought I might have thrown him a curveball on the, on the education question. <laughs> what do you mean he was honest? Like, no, but a lot of is. people. Well, a lot of people sometimes will dance around that sort of thing, and he wasn't afraid to hit it head on that there's a there's an issue with, um, not just Wharton, but any school. If all of a oh. sudden you're spending a quarter of a million dollars, and and parents want to know, well, what's my return? Right? What's my return on investment? You know, for for our listeners, Tim has been on his alumni board for a while. Or alumni. Was it alumni board? So the, the alumni association, yeah. The alumni association for a while. He loved, and Tim had a, I, I got to see Tim's school on one of our road trips years ago, and I fell in love with the two. If I went there, I, I'd be, I'd be very, uh, I'd be very happy. But you've been sounding the alarm bell on higher ed and smaller schools at least for five years now. Right. That are, like, well, they're tuition dependent. And there's rumor that 25% will go out. I mean, my school, Marietta in Ohio, Marietta College, has some great, unique programs, but location's an issue. They're tuition-based schools, so they rely on their tuition-reliant schools. Have a decent endowment, but not in the billions like a lot of, like Wharton would have or Penn. So it's a struggle for higher ed. And so many people now think, they, they said a lot of people have, have watched, parents have watched their students that during the pandemic were online and watching the classes as maybe mom's in the kitchen or the son's uh, at the dining table. And then they're yeah. thinking, I'm paying, paying, paying 60,000 for this. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So it's uh, really turned the whole world upside down, but that's, that's another whole show, Mr. Nash. We can get I'd like to do a show right. on academia. I've read a lot recently about good yeah. students, bad students, good, bad teachers, good schools, bad schools. Yeah. Yeah, so thanks for joining us once again. Be sure to uh, find out all about us at focusgroupradio.com. We remind you to arrive on live. Don't text and drive. I always say it backwards. Remember, I don't know why to... Don't, don't text you and drive. It. Are you like, the one you yeah, don't text and drive. Arrive alive. There you so, go. Uh, yeah, and we'll see you uh, on Unbutton next Tuesday. Take care. It's The Focus Group with Tim Bennett and John Nash. Accessible on all platforms. Subscribe, like, and rate us on your platform of choice. Learn more at focusgroupradio.com. That was a stunning focus group.